Anyone in this room ever been in a fight? First service, I had some guys like high-fiving each other. There's someone in the back. I'm like, can we count? Maybe, maybe it wasn't a physical fight for you. Maybe your battles are more the emotional, the, the medical kind of entanglements that you find yourself in. But regardless of who your enemy was, how many battles, how long those had gone on, you and I know that the battles we face, they change us, don't they? Sometimes they leave us with physical scars, sometimes emotional ones. They make us realize that life is not always peachy keen and easy. And so in Ephesians chapter 6, interestingly, we turn to Ephesians 6 this morning, verse 10 to 17, and we hear the Apostle Paul tell the Christian their life is not a cakewalk, it's a battle. The Christian, I don't know, this might be a newsflash to you, the Christian life is not meant to be a throw-your-feet-up-at-the-beach vacation from now until eternity, until Christ returns. We are in a battle, and we thank God that the war has been won. Christ has come. He has conquered Satan in death and sin, and he will return to vanquish them forever. But until then, we battle. But it's not against physical hardship or emotional hardship primarily. Primarily, we battle against a spiritual enemy, Satan and the schemes of the devil. And so that's what Paul is going to use this week and next week. As we conclude, believe it or not, we are concluding Paul's letter to the church in Ephesians. Uh, we've been through, going through this for a while, but it's a very fitting conclusion to our letter, and here's why. In chapters 1 to 3, the very first part of the letter, if you can remember it now, Paul encouraged us to sit in the grace of God, to receive all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus. What has he done for us? You've been chosen, forgiven, redeemed, adopted, sealed by the Holy Spirit as God's children forever, new life through Jesus living your life and taking your death, and then brought into a new community, the church, given a new mission to display the manifold wisdom of God to the world. How much greater mission could we ever have? Receive, sit in this grace, but then don't just receive it, walk in light of it. Chapters 4 to 6, the Apostle Paul says, this is what your identity in Christ should lead you to do as activity through Christ. Remember all the walk commandments we heard? Walk in love as God loved us. Walk in love, walk in light, walk in wisdom, walk wisely, making the best use of your time. And finally, in just this last section, verse 10 to 20 of Ephesians chapter 6, we hear him say one word over and over four times, stand up, stand up. Sit first, walk next, now stand in battle in spiritual war. See, the big idea that he's going to unpack for us this week and next week is that the Christian is called, the church collectively is called to wage spiritual warfare. And the question he's going to answer for you and I in the church, how do we do that? What does it look like to wage the spiritual war? Well, he's going to answer it with three simple commandments. He's going to tell us to stand up against God's enemy in God's strength. He's going to tell us to suit up in God's armor. And next week, speak up in Holy Spirit-dependent prayer. Stand up, suit up, and speak up. Let's wage the spiritual war, starting by standing up, verse 10 to 13. Please follow along with me as we work our way through God's word. I want you to see these are not my, you don't need my ideas. 
You need the word of God. Let's start. Verse 10 to 13 with God's word. Finally, the the word that many of you are feeling as we conclude Ephesians after six months. Finally, Paul says, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. During seminary, I had like the sweetest part-time job ever. I got to be an assistant coach for a college soccer team. And this essentially just meant that I was responsible for getting 18 to 22. I was like 24 at the time. So this was more me like kicking them in the butt and being like, hey, stop being lazy. But it was more me getting them ready to stand up and battle come game day, whatever it took. Whether it was practice, recruiting, but especially that last, if you've been on a team, you know what happens in the locker room right before you go out in the field, that last 30 minutes, you're giving the rah-rah pump-up talk. You're banging the lockers. You're telling them this might be the last game you ever play, so get on out there. We're not meant to stay in the locker room. That's what Paul's doing in this passage. He speaks as like the coach to the Christian church, and he's saying, guys, get in the game. We didn't practice and do all this stuff so we could chill in the locker room. I want you to get out there. Listen again to verse 10. You can almost hear the excitement boil over. Finally. It's a second person plural he uses here. He's like telling the whole church, (laughs) y'all, everyone, pew, pulpit together. We're all starters. There ain't no water boys in this room, okay, in this spiritual war. Finally, be strong in the Lord. And the strength of his might. Get in the game. Church, get in the game. Stand up in battle. But he says, don't think you can do this on your own power. This is not a game that you can win just by your might. But he says, be strong in the Lord. And the strength of his might. See, in the church, we are so quick to speak of God's love and mercy as if God were merely a soft and and friendly, Jesus is my homeboy kind of thing. And we should be quick to speak of the mercy of God. Without the mercy of God, we have no hope for eternity. He lived the life we failed to and died the death we deserve. God puts forward his son in our place because he so loved us. That is mercy. But we must not also rob God of his power. The strength of the Lord, which Paul commands us to stand in. And Paul wants us to remember how great this power is, so much so that he began Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 19 to 21 with these very such words. In Ephesians 1, you'll remember, he says, What is the immeasurable greatness, unquantifiable power? What is the immeasurable greatness of of God toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Here's the truth of the gospel. Jesus did live the sinless life that you and I failed to. 
And then he went to the cross to die, the sacrificial, substitutionary, in my place, death that you and I deserve in our sin. But if the story ended there, we would have no hope. If the story ended in that tomb, you and I would be gathering in vain. But the story doesn't end there. The reality of the gospel says the life, the, the death was followed by a resurrection. See, three days of being in that cold, dark tomb was ended by Jesus Christ rolling the stone back, walking out alive and saying, sin, Satan, and death, I see your opposition, but I'm going to win. I am the one who is powerful over every enemy that could ever separate my people from God himself. When Jesus walked out, he announced new life was born for all who believe in him. And he announced to the world that the tomb is empty and the throne is occupied. Guys, this changes everything. This is the good hope upon which the good news is banked. And I don't know about you, but this is the reason that I came to church this morning. Because Jesus is alive. And I don't know if you want to, but we should be ready to praise him Sunday in, Sunday out. This is the Lord's day. We have a risen Savior, guys. And this is the Savior. This is the power you and I need because we are up against an enemy that's greater than you and I can topple. See, the good news of the gospel says Jesus is alive. And it's the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead that now lives in the believer, giving life to his mortal bodies, our mortal bodies as well. And so we need this spirit because listen to who we're up against. Verse 11 and 12. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Did you hear what Paul said the Christian life is like? This is a wrestling match. A wrestling match. I've known, I've obviously never wrestled, but I've known some guys, yes, who have. Some guys in the first, yes, we laugh because it's true. I can laugh at myself too. In the first service, there are two gentlemen who had wrestled extensively through high school and college. I asked them what this was like. And they're like, it's like fighting yourself in a mirror until both of you pass out. I was like, that sounds terrible. Why did you do that? Wrestling's hard. And Paul says in this passage, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against Satan and his schemes. The Christian life is not go to the beach and chill. The Christian life is this grappling, this combat, this sweated out until Christ returns and vanquishes Satan forever. This is hard stuff, guys. And we are wrestling against Satan in this unholy all-star list. Did you hear it in verse 12? Rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, forces of evil. Oh, me, oh, my. My goodness. And I'm not saying that to be flippant. I'm saying that Paul puts this list in here, not so much to scare us, but to sober us. The battle we fight is real. We should be on our guard. We're fighting against the same Satan that tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, 
that battled Jesus in the wilderness, who 1 Peter 5 says prowls around like a, like a lion seeking someone to devour. But this list is not in here to try to like transfix our focus on Satan and his schemes. This list is in here to invite us to fix our focus on Jesus, the one who is more powerful than all of this. See, Paul said in Ephesians 1, the immeasurable greatness of God is seen in his power according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ and he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, all authority, all dominion, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. All of these unholy all-star competitors that we're up against, Jesus is greater than. Jesus is more powerful than all of these. I need a merciful and a powerful God, and Jesus is both. And that's the one whose strength we wrestle, we get in the ring with, not on our own, but we wrestle. And so that's the invitation that we turn to now because we, we heard we're up against the schemes of the devil. I was wondering what that meant, so I looked it up this week. And the Apostle Paul wants us to know Satan is using methods which are less like billboards and more like whispers. You ever felt this in your life? Satan's designs and schemes and temptations towards you don't often look like the neon sign or the big old billboard on 13 that say, evil, 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 stay away. If only it were that easy, right? Satan's schemes often come to us via distortion of God's word. He takes what God has said, and then he seeks to deceive it by twisting it. Remember the garden, Genesis 3? Sounded like a whisper, didn't it? It wasn't a billboard there in that first garden. It was Adam and Eve. Hey, did God really say you shouldn't eat that fruit? Did he really say that? What about your life and my life this week, recently? Did God really say that marital fidelity, complete marital fidelity, is good for you all the time. Well, yes, he did. At your work. Did God really say that integrity, working unto the Lord, treating your employers and your boss as though you are a servant of Christ Jesus, that that's good? Well, yes, he did. But in those moments, you're tempted to think otherwise. You're tempted to justify the anger, the gossip, the unneeded activity. See, evil rarely looks evil until it gets lived out. Satan's called the father of lies. He, he puts before us like worms on a, on a fishing hook. He makes sin, this grotesque sin, look so appealing and enticing to us. But then once we eat of it, we realize we're hooked and we regret it. So, guys, my caution to you is be aware of his schemes. And I, and I was praying for us and thinking about what might some of those whispers sound like in, our, in your life, in my life? What have they sounded like in history and through other churches? And I'm going to put before you a list of schemes that I think are some of the common ones um, that we need to be on our guard against. First and foremost, one of the chief schemes of Satan in our life, he's going to tempt you to substitute yourself for God. He's going to make you think that you are God, that you are sovereign, and that your ways are better than his ways. And that if God really knew my situation, well, he would have given me a different word in scripture or a different commandment to follow. Besides the one he gave for all of us for all time. 
God is God. We are not. Satan's going to tempt us to substitute our kingdom for his kingdom. We're going to think, my goodness, if Jameson only knew how busy I am. I have my work, my kids, my grandkids, my my job, my neighbors. I have so much going on. I don't have time for God and his work and his kingdom. When am I supposed to do that? He's going to tempt us to pursue joy in gifts instead of joy in the giver of those gifts. We're going to be tempted amidst the busyness and the hustle bustle of life to think, if I just got that promotion at work, if I could just take that vacation or hear that affirmation from my in-laws, my spouse, my grown kids, then I'd be at peace. You guys ever felt that? Then I'd be at rest. I'd have what I wanted. But Psalm 16, verse 4 says, the sorrows of those who run after another God will just multiply. The more you and I run on the hamster wheel of looking to gifts to satisfy us like the giver can, we're going to be tired out day in and day out. Look for joy in God's presence. Next, Satan will tempt you by lulling you into complacency. He'll make you think, maybe you've gotten to that point. This might be you. You might have gotten to that point in your life. You have enough money. You get to vacation and travel at your dispense, your your convenience. You have the cutest grandkids in the world, and you have the pictures to prove it. (laughs) More than one amen was echoed in the hearts of many right there. And you're thinking, what do I need God for? I have all that I ask God for in my bullet list of prayers. So what do I need him for? If that's what you're feeling today, Satan has you on the sideline instead of the game. Satan has you where he wants you, thinking that I'm not participating in the mission of God's church. Don't let him lull you into complacency. And then second last, Satan will tempt you to think that sin is normal. Sin is normal. That you've gotten so used to living with that habit, so used to clicking on that website, uttering that gossip, getting angry when someone uh, infringes your law instead of God's law. That's just how things are. I can manage it. Guys, there is no normal sin. The reality of sin is that you be killing it or it will be killing you. Remember, Satan is roaring around like a lion. Not a little tame house cat that you can cuddle up with and pet and he'll purr when you want him to, but then go away when you don't want him to. Don't get, don't normalize sin. And finally, the one that most appropriately speaks to many churches is Satan will seek to divide churches. Remember in verse 11 and 12, Paul says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Your greatest enemy, my greatest enemy, is not the person across the aisle or in the pew behind you, or even the preacher talking to you. We don't wrestle flesh and blood. We are meant to be allies in this spiritual war, not competitors. There is no place for our preferences getting in the way of our love for each other and the priorities of God to advance his kingdom by way of the local church. If Satan were to tempt you this week, what would he target? If Satan were to scheme against you this week, what would he target? What might that whisper sound like for you and for our church? See, here's the call. Stand up. Stand up against this very enemy, against those schemes, against those lies. And it starts by standing up, by receiving God's Son. You can't stand up in God's power until you receive God's Son. Give Him your sin. 
receive his forgiveness, realize that Christ has beaten the enemy forever. The war is over. Yes, we wage the battle, but you need to believe in Christ Jesus for salvation first before you follow him as Lord. So once you've received him as Savior, then we follow him as Lord by suiting up in God's armor. Verse 14 to 17. Let's, let's move to our last point this morning. Verse 14 to 17. Suit up in the armor of God. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This is the team uniform. Simply put, this is the church's team uniform. And it makes me ask, what does, what, seriously, when you get dressed in the morning, what are you hoping your clothes say about you? What does your, your outfit say about you? Does it say that I'm a fashionable person? Or does it say that I have functions to carry out? See, all of our wardrobes usually are fashionable or functional. And if you have the undesired, opportunity of running into me on like a Tuesday afternoon, you know which one I dress for. And it's not fashion. It's purely function. Matt and I, we meet together often on Tuesdays, and he'll tell you that my Tuesday afternoon meetings often look like they're sponsored by Under Armour, not Dockers. And here's why. From the moment I leave my house and in the beginning, the moment I get home to my house, I'm in dad casual wear ready for, like, diapers and, and dishes and walks and all that sort of stuff. So during the days, I'm sometimes in the dad casual. We're not the business casual. But nonetheless, the Apostle Paul wants the Christian to be suited up in God's armor, a very functional outfit, these carefully crafted tools for the battle-ready body. And it starts in verse 14. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. The belt of truth. Our belts hold everything together, right? So it keeps the pants up. The belt of truth, in, in God's perspective, is the word of God. It's Jesus says in John 17, 3, your word is truth. And it's his word that tells us what's right about God, ourselves, and the world. But what happens when you don't wear the belt and the pants are too big? You come undone. What happens when you don't put the belt of God's word on day after day? Well, the pants of godly perspective fall down. You start having these crazy thoughts like, man, is God who he really says he is? You start having these doubts. The God's word begins to seem less important than the advice of the world. So we need to put on the belt first and foremost. You need to be in the word day after day, memorizing, meditating upon, speaking this word to yourself and to others. How can you put on the belt of God's word this week in very practical ways? Next, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The marvel of the gospel is this. When you become a Christian, you are given holy, perfect righteousness. Despite your sin before God, Christ has come to give you the perfect record of righteousness you haven't earned and don't deserve. God made him to be sin for us. So he who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. We're given a garment of perfection. 
And it's this positional imputed righteousness that then encourage practical, encourages practical righteousness. Paul says in Ephesians 4, he, he tells us, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You've been made holy, so live holy. Think about the last wedding you went to. Last wedding you went to. Did the bride at that wedding dare to eat ketchup, mustard, or barbecue sauce? Not a chance. Not a chance. And she probably didn't let her groom get anywhere near it either. Here's why. She ain't going to stain that wedding dress. She's been given the most beautiful attire she'll wear in her entire life. Not a chance she's going to dabble with those messy sauces. The Christian in Christ has been given eternal uh, wedding-fitting attire. You have been given the garments of perfect righteousness that were Christ Jesus now put on you. Don't dabble in sin. Don't dabble with the messiness of, of the gossip, the anger, the pornography, the addictions to things that God says we shouldn't walk in. How can you, this week, be putting sin to death and living in light of the garment of righteousness that God has already given you in Christ Jesus? What do we put on our feet? Verse 15. As shoes for your feet, put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace. Paul says the Christian should be ready to run, not throw their feet up on the, on the resting ottoman table. He says, Christian, I want you to put the Nikes on. Take the house slippers off. You've been meant to take this gospel, the readiness of the gospel of peace, outside of these four walls. You've been meant to go to those three non-Christians who I keep inviting you. Who are your three? Who are your three? I have three. We all need to have three non-Christians who we can love, pray for, and intentionally speak the gospel to. Who are your three non-Christian friends, family, colleagues that you can take this gospel to? And here's what motivates us. It's not just a to, like to do, you have to do this. It's a you get to do. This is the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace. What you and I needed more than anything is the same thing the world outside here needs more than anything. To know that peace with God is possible. That God has made a way for us to receive peace through Christ Jesus, who himself is our peace. And so we take this to those who don't yet have peace with God and say that peace with God is only possible through his pardon, not your performance. Through his pardon, not your performance. So put on the shoes, take this message outside. Um, AKA, please join us on the prayer walk this Wednesday evening. Great opportunity to put the spiritual Nikes on as we get out into the neighborhood and pray for our community. And we need a shield. Verse 16, look at, look at what shield we use against Satan's temptations. Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Roman soldiers had a big old two foot by three foot shield they had to defend against missiles, like not literal ballistic missiles, but like bow and arrows with flames on them. Satan's schemes are often like flaming darts, trying to penetrate our hearts, especially in doubt and despair. When you don't have enough money, when you feel lonely, when you feel like that medical hardship just keeps going on and on, we're tempted to hear Satan's whispers, those flaming darts, and we wonder, does God care? Is God with me? 
Does God know what I'm going through? Is God going to do anything about this? Those are lies, accusations. The shield of faith says the Christian has more than good feelings when those temptations come. We have facts. See, I didn't become a a Christian until later in life, in part because I knew I needed more than feelings to depend on God. More than a pat on the back and it's going to be all right. I needed to know that Jesus actually lived, actually died, and then actually rose from the dead. That is what my faith is built on. And your faith and my faith will only be as strong as the object of it. Unless you are looking to Jesus, the one who actually rose from the dead, we're going to falter if we just stay with feelings. But the object of your faith is strong because God is alive in Christ Jesus. So take that shield up and remember that he who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how much more along with him will he graciously give us all things? Verse 17, what do you put on your head? The helmet of salvation. This is what guards all your thoughts and your minds. If you're really in Christ Jesus, no one can snatch you from his hand. Nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ. That's what you need at the moment of difficulty, of despair and doubt. The helmet of salvation guarding all your thoughts and mind in Christ Jesus. And finally, here's what we take up in our warfare against Satan. The sword of the Spirit, verse 17. What is the sword of the Spirit? It says the Word of God. We have a sharp sword, Hebrews 4. The Word of God is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of body and soul. Guys, if you want to get in that wrestling match with Satan and his schemes, and you want to be piercing him instead of just trying to run away from his blows, you need the Word of God. This Word has got to be stored up in you so that when temptation and doubt comes, not just to you but to others in the church, you're ready to speak it, to jab into those lies that Satan would thrust before you. That when others are suffering, you can tell them, I am here with you, but God, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, is the one who can comfort you in every affliction. He is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. This is the word that we pierce Satan's lies with. How can you take up the sword this week? By storing it up and then speaking it out to others. See, guys, the question before you is, what are you wearing spiritually? Church, what are you wearing spiritually? Are you wearing the beach wear that says, I'm ready for vacation? Or are you you wearing the battle armor that says, I want to get in the game? I'm ready. I'm ready to get out of the locker room. I'm ready to get away from the Christian huddles or the self-focus in the mirror. I'm ready to take the gospel out, participate in the Super Bowl of God's kingdom advancing. And we remember that the only way we can is by standing in the strength of the one who came to beat our enemy. See, Jesus is the one who was clothed in Isaiah 59 in perfect righteousness. He wore zeal as a cloak. Jesus was so concerned with your eternity that he was willing to leave his comfortable home with God the Father, enter into our sin and our suffering, to come alongside us in our weakness. To say, I see your sin against God, and I know you can never undo it, and you can't do enough right things to earn good standing with God, so I'm going to offer what God demands. I'm going to give you my holiness by dying the death that you deserve, giving you my righteousness and taking your sin. And so my invitation to you today is look to Jesus. 
don't try to do this on your own. Look to the one who stood up and beat your enemy, sin, Satan, and death, by emptying the tomb and saying, I'm going to stand in his strength. And then be suited up in his armor and saying, he's the one who's done all this perfectly, so now I need his vestments as I join the church in battling with them. How is God calling you to respond? What is God asking you to do in dependence on Jesus in the power of the Spirit this week to stand up against the schemes of the devil and to suit up in God's armor by joining the church in this battle? See, this is more than a rah-rah, bang the lockers, get out in the field kind of talk. When the word of God goes out, it doesn't return void. And the word of God wants to penetrate our hearts much more so than the urgent rush to get to Golden Corral does right now. And I say that seriously. I want you to consider honestly, what is the Lord leading you to do in response to his revealed word in Scripture by standing up in Christ Jesus and suiting up in God's armor to help the church battle spiritual warfare. This is the warfare that you and I must be engaged in if we want to see this church thrive and flourish moving ahead. So here's what we're going to do in response. There's two ways I'm going to invite you to respond. One is by believing in Jesus as Savior. I don't assume that every single person who shows up every single Sunday is already given God their sin and received his forgiveness in a very personal way. Jesus hasn't come to just die generally, but to call specifically, personally, you unto salvation by giving him your sin, receiving his forgiveness, if you've yet to do so. And if you've yet to do that, the invitation for you today is clear. Would you run to him and do that? Confess your need for his work to give you that peace, not through your performance, but his pardon. And so I'm going to invite you to come to the altar and kneel and and pray with me, talk with me, or one of the elders about that, or begin by talking with him at your seat. Follow him as Savior, follow him as Lord. I'm going to invite you to call out to Jesus in prayer this morning, to acknowledge the ways you've fallen short of standing up and suiting up, and then to ask him to help you to do so. Ask him, implore him on behalf of our church, on behalf of Christian Covenant Fellowship. God, help us to wage this spiritual war. Help us to be a people of prayer who love Jesus and his glory so much so that we're willing to die to ourselves and to live for his priorities. And I'm going to similarly invite you to come forward and pray with the elders, the volunteers that will be up front. Elders, this is me volunteering you. Please do stand up front. I forgot to clear this with them. But I'm going to invite you to come forward and pray with us pray for the church. You can kneel where you are. You can come up. Let's pray and ask God to do what only God can do. So we're going to do this as Mitchell leads us in a time of musical response and as we take communion, which reminds us we have a strong object of our faith, Christ Jesus. His body was actually broken. His blood was actually poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. So as the the deacons and the ushers come around with the offering plates in just a moment. I'm going to invite you to take, eat, and drink, and remember that Christ's body was broken, his blood poured out, and that's who we cry out to now in this time of standing up and suiting up. Would you join me in prayer?
Father, we come before you so needy, so thankful and yet so needy. Lord, we thank you that you have sent your Son to live the life, die the death, and be risen from the dead to give us eternal hope. He paid my penalty in my place. And so we confess our entire hope in life and death is in him and upon your immeasurable great power. And Lord, we ask by your spirit working in us and in your church that you would enable us to stand up against the schemes of the devil in your strength. That you'd enable us to suit up, be, be ready for battle against these schemes together as allies in the church. Lord, we pray and petition that you would use Christian covenant fellowship in all the gospel preaching churches in Carterville and beyond to expand your gospel, that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. God, do this in so much more than we could ask or imagine, not because of us, but to your name give glory. Lord, we throw our hope upon you. Our love is for you. And we ask that you would increasingly make your glory known in this time and this place. Amen.